Hola, my name is Jessie Medina. Welcome to Femex Podcast, a bilingual female empowerment show that brings inspiration and resources for women who want to thrive and live life on their own terms. In each episode, we talk about the stories of women who overcame adversity and empower themselves to follow their dreams. Are you ready to grow and be inspired along with me? Let's do this. Welcome. I am here with Majo Molfino. I am so excited to be having a conversation with you. How are you? I'm good, Jesse. How are you doing today? I'm doing so good and I'm super excited to be talking to you today. I actually started reading your book. I got your book a few months back when I found out I was going to do this interview and I saw that you're Argentinian too mm -hmm. and I'm Argentinian myself and I don't run into a lot of Argentines here. So it's really <laughs> exciting to Now, to find another one. <laughs> so good to find our people. Where in Argentina are you from? I'm actually from Mendoza. So okay. wine country. Where are you from? Yeah. So my grandmother's sister, so my great aunt, she's from Mendoza. So uh, my tia Cristina y Jorge, Ooh. they live in Mendoza. My family is from Rosario and I was born in Buenos okay. Aires. Nice. Mm -hmm. And then when did you move? Like, how old were you when you moved? I was two years old when we immigrated from Buenos Aires to Toronto, Canada. Wow. So you were, you were a baby. Pretty I much. was a baby, pretty much. Yes. Do you feel like you are very much a Canadian too, since you pretty much grew up there? Yes. I, growing up, I did not quite feel fully Canadian and I didn't feel fully Argentinian either. So it was very strange. I had a, a bit of a cultural identity crisis where I was like, where am I from? I knew my parents were clearly Argentine, very Argentine. My grandparents, Argentinian <laughs> for sure. But my brother and I, you know, we started to respond uh, to my parents in English. And then we started to learn French because we moved to Quebec. And so I think I had a lot of different languages and exposure to many cultures. And in Canada, there were not many Argentines. And, you know, it was just, I feel like for, to, to find Argentinians outside of Argentina, you have to be in like Miami or Los Angeles. Miami, pretty much. Like yeah. that's the closest you get to Argentina <laughs> in the U.S. I love that. And you said something that's really important because you said you didn't feel fully Argentinian or fully Canadian. And I can totally relate to that. Like when I go back to Argentina, I'm too American and I have an accent. And then when I'm here, I'm Argentinian or Latina and I have an accent. You know? So it's like, it's um that tricky place and I think you kind of touched on that in the book and one of the things that I loved about your book when I first saw it and I think I instantly became obsessed with your work is the name of it I mean I thought like okay I hadn't even read the book yet and I was like this is speaking to me <laughs> I have to have this book so tell us a little bit about your book and how you came about with the idea for the book and the concept sure so the book is called break the good girl myth And I came up for the idea when I started noticing in a lot of my clients and my friends and my family members that we had the same tendencies come up again and again that were keeping us stuck in terms of really stepping into our power. So a lot of women want to share their gifts. They want to share their perspective and voices, but they're still falling into the same traps. And I thought, where did these traps come from? Where did we learn them? And I thought back to my own life and in listening to my client stories, I realized that they were things we picked up as little girls from the patriarchy, 
And there are things that we internalized, messages we believed when we were younger about how a woman should be and act. And that's how I developed the five good girl myths that I break down in the book was through that concept. And, and the, the argument of the book is in order for you as a woman to really uh, make a contribution on the planet in a way that is most aligned for you, you have to break these five good girl myths. You have to strip them off. You have to go through these layers in order to come to something more essential and true. Yeah, and I love that you said that everyone to different degrees has one, at least one of these. Because I think some people might say like, I'm the person that was like, okay, this book is for me. Maybe some people or some women would say, oh, maybe that's not for me. Or like, I'm not a good girl, or I don't have that problem. But then when you actually start reading the book, you actually identify different scenarios or different types, if you will. And I feel like at least one of them will apply to everyone. Why don't you share with us a little bit of like, how do you know? And how did you find your own type? Because I think it takes work to be able to see within yourself. Mm -hmm. I love that you brought this up because I am noticing some women who are responding to the book and saying, like you described, oh, I didn't really grow up as a good girl or I didn't have that good girl thing. But then when I mentioned the five good girl myths, just like you said, they're like, oh yeah, I actually do have that one. So let me just quickly go through the five myths and then I can share which one is my sure. primary. So the myth of rules. I didn't want to, um, I'm, I'm glad you're doing that because I, I wasn't sure if you wanted me to give away too much of the book, but I'm glad that you want to do at least a little mention of each. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. So the good girl myth of rules, that's when we're following external authority instead of trusting our own needs and desires. The myth of perfection, which is my primary good girl myth, demanding perfection in ourselves and in other people. Uh, the myth of logic, choosing logic over intuition, especially in our decision-making. The myth of harmony, seeking harmony instead of the conflict, confrontation we need in order to grow. And then the, finally, the myth of sacrifice, putting other people's needs before our own at the expense of our own well-being. So these are the five good girl myths that I go into depth in the book and break down very thoroughly. And mine is the myth of perfection because when I was growing up, I was told, you're very gifted, you're very talented, you're very special, you're so smart, you're so beautiful, you're going to be great one day. And there was so much pressure, you know, that I started to put on myself around being perfect and showing up, being nice, being high achieving. So getting an A plus report card with winning all the trophies. And so I just really assimilated, you know, I was rewarded for these things. I was given a gold star. I was given a pat on the head every time I was like, good. And so <laughs> yeah. um, eventually that caught up to me, you know, and it, uh, it landed me in a place where I felt very empty and mm -hmm. miserable and questioning of my purpose. And you mentioned that in the book that when we are living out these expectations and rules and whatnot, we are actually not walking in our purpose. And I think that's really interesting because when you talk to people, I think we all, you know, would ideally want to be in our purpose, be ourselves, be authentic. And yet we have all these filters and ideas that are not even really ours. And for me, I really identified with the perfection one, but also with the harmony one, mm. because I grew up thinking, you know, I just want to get along with everyone. I want everyone to get along. And in that journey, I mean, when I look back right now with the realization, 
there were so many things that I overlooked or that I allowed that were not right Mm -hmm. and that affected me, whether it was my career or, you know, even a relationship, a romantic relationship, because I wanted to keep the peace. And so it's, I really, I really love that. And it's still tricky. I think Mm -hmm. it's a journey, but now I know that the truth is important over just keeping harmony or, you know, trusting my intuition. I took your quiz too. So you have a quiz on your website for the ones that don't know go check out your her website and I took the quiz too and it said that I have the intuitive the intuition, ah. and intuition and it's true and yet I even though I always know best I don't always listen to that right and I think a lot of people can relate to that where you know we know best and they wouldn't really listen to that and then it's like ah oh, shoot I should have listened to my intuition so how do you without giving away your book obviously because I do want people to get it and read it because it goes so deep and you share stats and facts and stories but you know how can we begin the process of kind of shedding these you know types different types or limitations I guess you could say mm-hmm Well, the first thing I like to say is we have to realize that we've been born into a cage. That feels like, oh, I don't really like that idea, but we're born into an invisible cage. It's not a comfortable idea, but it's true. And now is the opportunity for us to wake up and look and see the actual bars and see that we're in this little prison state. And it's very empowering. And, and, you know, I was talking about this with a woman yesterday because we have a book club and she was like, oh my God, I feel like I've been lied to. This is horrible. I'm finally waking up to all this stuff. And I was like, true. And it's a moment of awakening, right? Mm -hmm actually saying, wow, look at, I've been believing and buying all these messages and all this training that I got. So the first step is really awareness in understanding the five good girl myths and then taking the assessment in the book in chapter three to discover which is your primary and secondary good girl myth. This is like the foundational step because it's going to help you understand where to focus. So for you, you said your primary is uh, harmony and secondary is perfection, for example. So it's good to know that Mm -hmm. about you, you know, it's good because it's going to help you understand, okay, these are the two blind spots that come up again and again in my relationships, my career, my well-being that are stopping me from really stepping up, being powerful and doing what I really want to do in my life. So that's that's the thing. And then depending on the good girl myth, because we have all five good girl myths to a different degree, but one or two are strongest. Depending on the myth, I, I propose different solutions, different tools, frameworks, mm-hmm. different specific meditations and rituals for each myth. Mm-hmm. Because every myth has a different way and mechanism that it holds you down, right? Like you mentioned for harmony, the myth of harmony, the way it holds you down is it stifles your voice, right? And your truth, particularly the voice. Mm-hmm. Because yep. when you have a myth of harmony, you're afraid to speak up. You're afraid to exert a boundary with your voice. That's the, the main. Mm-hmm. For rules, the thing we give up is our purpose. So because every good girl myth mm-hmm. works a little bit differently, you have a different set of solutions for them, which I dive deep yep. into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so good. And I feel like I want to continue to take myself through this journey now. And I want to hear a little more about the process right like when did you go because I think as a creative you know we sometimes have like a spark of creativity where it just comes to us or sometimes it's just like a process so I want to hear more about your process and experience how did you go from you know being yourself and the perfectionist and all that and then hey I'm gonna write a book about this or I'm gonna work on this like I want to hear that part of the story Mm -hmm. sure so you know at some point in my early 20s I ended up at I had followed all the rules all the things that I thought I had to do which was get get a high degree 
go to a good school and then get a nine to five job at a good company that paid a good salary and make my immigrant parents happy. That was the the sort of thing that I believed I had to do. And so that what, what where that landed me in my early 20s, I was in a depression. I was breaking out on my skin. I was sad, feeling a lot of anxiety about Oh, what am I here on the planet to do? Is it, is this all there is to life, you know? And so I had a moment when I was looking in the mirror in that point in my journey when I was just looking at myself in the eyes and I felt like I was wearing a costume. It was a very short amount of time. It was like a minute. I was looking at myself and I was like, wow, if this blazer is a costume, I can take it off. And I had this revelation of like, okay, I could take this role off. I could take this costume off. I can make another choice. And it was the first uh, epiphany that I had that changed my trajectory. From there, I quit that job and I moved out to California. And that changed my life because in California, I came into contact with entrepreneurship, innovation, design, and that opened my mind to creativity. And so much of my work now is supporting women through the design process because I believe Mm -hmm. design is how we bring an idea into form. And one of the most powerful, Yeah. One of the most powerful things about design and design thinking is that it helps us break perfectionism because when we're trying to be perfect, we don't allow ourselves to be messy, scrappy, uh, try things. We don't allow ourselves to be experimental, make mistakes, right? So the design thinking process is the perfect antidote to this good girl mentality of like, I'm too afraid to try. I don't want to try because I don't want to fail. So when I became, when I learned design thinking, I was like, wow, this is gold. I want to use this for the rest of my life. And not only that, I want to teach it to others. So I started my coaching business. I started interviewing designers on my podcast, the heroin podcast. I started, and then I was like, how can I bring this into a framework? And that's when I developed Mm -hmm. the five good girl myths and thinking about what are the elements of design thinking that can really counteract each of these myths. Um, For each of the good girl myths, I have a design thinking mindset that really helps you Mm -hmm. offset, reverse that, that specific myth. I love that because I, when you were speaking about design in the book too, I do come from that background too. So it it really resonated. I was like, who is this girl? My twin, like soul sister or something. (laughs) I love Um, that. I always talk about- Are you a designer? So I come from a, yeah, well, not- by trade, I guess, like not professionally trained. I went to school for business and communications, but since high school, I got into design and I did graphic design and I actually won awards. I was pretty good, but everything was either like high school courses or or then it was just self-taught for fun. It was a hobby. But like you said, it's a process because again, I'm not professionally trained and, and it's not about that. And also design does apply, like you mentioned in your book, to everything. And this is something that a lot of women, you know, that don't maybe don't see themselves as the creative or they don't necessarily feel like they've ever had to design anything we do we are constantly coming up with ideas and designing and working and and getting creative and and so I I really felt like oh my gosh this is so good like I I, and I can't wait for people to read it because it just really works and I think when you approach life that way or even problems that way and not with the expectation to necessarily have something perfect but just to create and, and just to have fun with it I think that's when the most beautiful things come about. So you mm-hmm. kind of like breeze through the process of like, okay, I quit my job and I moved to LA. I actually <laughs> quit my corporate job too and I moved to San Diego. Um, so again, I can relate to that. But what was it like right before you took the leap? Because I know for me, it was like really scary and I had my own process. So I want to hear about your process of like right before taking the leap, what was in your mind and what helped you finally just jump? Mm-hmm. 
You know, I think before taking the leap out to California, I had two sides to me. One side was stay close to your parents, uh, continue at this job, get another job like this, uh, you know, stay in Washington, D.C. And then the other voice was like this intuition. It was like a pull, you know, like a feeling. And it was like, I always felt that I was a California girl at heart. When I was <laughs> when I was living in Montreal, Quebec, and I was going to McGill and walking in four feet of snow to get to my psychology class, I remember thinking to myself, one day I'm going to live in California. And, yeah. and so I always had this seed, this feeling, this impulse to go out West. And I followed that. And I think it's always scary when you have these two voices that are battling right? You have the logical side that's saying stay. And then you have the intuitive side that's saying go. And so I think for me, it was really about, I think at the time, one of the things that I had said to myself was think of it as an experiment. Go at, go try for a period of time. And if you need to come back, you can. And I think that relieved the pressure, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of it feeling like this permanent thing, this thing that was going to be forever. It was like, follow this impulse right now, but know that like you can always change. And I think one of the things I teach with design thinking, which I learned from the design school is like not to be precious, right? This idea that we get that especially with our ideas. We think, oh my God, this is such a special idea. I don't want to share it with anyone. I don't want to show it with anyone to anyone. Or we, we, we get attached to our, our, our pathway. Like there's this pathway and there isn't that pathway. We get rigid. And I talk about this in the myth of rules. We can't be precious, not even about our careers and our life decisions. We have to take everything with a grain of salt and be experimental and say, let me try this for a period of time. Let me see. And I can always course correct, you know, especially when you're younger. If you're listening to this, you're in your 20s, you have some wiggle room, depending, of course, on your situation. But there is some room for you to course correct and iterate on your career choice. You know, and the way school is set up, I mean, I could talk about that for hours. It doesn't really allow for that kind of iteration. But, you know, it's like you have to choose your major track and kind of stick to it. And then it's, it's, a, it's a little, you know, everything about our system is regimented. So it's almost like you have to override that and think in a more creative way. It's up to you to think more creatively. Yeah, and I think when we think of younger generations, you know, I mean, when we look at our parents or even grandparents, you know, they would work in the same company for 30, 40 years, whatever. I can't even imagine working for the same company that long. I would literally get bored. But then you have younger generations that some of them are saying, like, I don't even need to go to college, you know? And if you had asked me, because like you, I went to college, I, I did it the right way, whatever. So back then, if you had asked me back then, I would have been like, yeah, I'll go to college. But now I have younger sisters and they're like, well, do I need to go to college? Like one of them just wrote a book, you know, you can do so many things without going to school. So when they asked me my opinion, when they graduated high school, they're like, should I go to school? I don't, I'm not really feeling like doing any specific career that I need to get in debt for to pay for school. And I was like, no, you don't need to. And I remember when I first said that, when like it actually came out of my mouth, I was really surprised. I was like, whoa, like that's not a Jesse from like years ago. Like I went through so much to be able to finish my career. So I was like, I cannot believe I said that. But I think, you know, for those that are listening, like the economy that we live in right now, I think it's actually a benefit to have this 
iterations and to have, you know, this, these diverse backgrounds and to be able to say like you, I'm a writer and a designer, like mm-hmm. in my case, I'm an entrepreneur and a podcaster or whatever it may be. I think there's a beauty to that. And I almost feel like companies, even big companies are looking for that because I think if all you can say is I just have this four year degree nowadays in this economy, it's almost not enough. So it's almost riskier in a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are careers where you really do need, obviously, the training, like medical school and whatnot. But I do think that I do enjoy the, the economy that we're in, that we can get creative and make, mm-hmm. like you said, either make the mistakes or not make the mistakes, you know, because it's part of your journey. So when you were going through that, you took the leap, you were brave, but then you get to LA. And I do want you to share a little bit about that, because at least for me, it wasn't easy when I first moved. So I would love to hear about your journey and how did you kind of, you know, start maybe growing or feeling like, okay, this was the right decision or like the doors started opening for you and what did it look like when you first got there? Mm-hmm. Sure. So I actually, when I first came out West, I, I landed in Palo Alto, which is uh, 40 minutes, an hour South of San Francisco. And mm-hmm. I, I remember getting some good signs from the universe. Like I found my roommate on Craigslist and he was also oh, Canadian. Wow. <laughs> he was Canadian. He was from a part of India that I had gone to. There was like all these little signs that made me think like, Oh, Oh, this is kind of interesting. And the other thing that he was is he was a designer at IDEO. IDEO is one of the top design firms in the world. And so when I met him, I remember sitting him down and saying like, what do you do for a living? (laughs) Like explain this to me. And him saying like, well, (laughs) we get these creative projects, we have clients and we have to like think strategies for them and design services and events and products. and, And it depends the client. And I thought, wow, that's such an interesting career. So being exposed to him and then meeting my now husband, who's a designer, you know, who is teaches at the Stanford Design School, started a, is a, wow. in the world of design and venture capital now. And, and he also brought me into this world of design and entrepreneurship. And so, so I also met my husband who was a designer and he, he connected me to the world of design and entrepreneurship at Stanford. And so I was in the right environment for me. You know, it was creative. It was international. It was open-minded. It was just the right place that felt good for my soul. Mm -hmm. So I think, would you say in a way, it's kind of like you're just being guided or you're flowing because you took that leap, because you took that risk? At that point, even then, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. So I was very much in a messy phase where I was still having these breakdowns where I was crying hysterically and telling my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, like, what am I doing with my life? Like, why am I here? Like, what kind of career am I going to do? So I don't think I was in a complete state of flow. I think I was in a lot of confusion for many years of like still trying to crack what the work was for me. And I ended up traveling. I went to India, which was very eye-opening. And when I came back, I started my master's degree in design. And that helped me. But even then, I was still thinking, what am I going to do with this? And then after my master's, I interviewed at big tech companies to be like a design researcher. But even then, it didn't feel right. I was like, I don't think I'm meant to do this. And that's when I realized I was meant to carve my own independent path as an entrepreneur. And that was very scary because that I would say that felt like a bigger leap to me, Jesse, than going out West. Like going out West was sort of like the first seed, but I think right. coming out of my master's degree and deciding I'm not going to get a stable nine to five job. 
in. Like, I'm not going to make that mistake. Like, that is not what I'm designed Mm -hmm. for. I'm actually going to start my own coaching business. I'm going to support women and empower women because that's what I really believe in. I'm going to start my own podcast. I'm going to write my own book. Like, I just, all this creative energy really Mm -hmm. came out of me from that master's degree. I like to say that learning design thinking gave me a lot of creative confidence and the creative confidence to sort of birth all the projects that I've birthed. Like, all the things that I've done is like a real, it's been a process of self-discovery, maturation, and also building creative confidence. And I think you had courage too, because just like that degree gave you confidence for a lot of people, that degree would give you safety, right? It would give you the comfort to say, I am going to go get a nine to five job, right? So I think it takes courage, especially when you're not put in that invisible box of like, oh, you went to design school. So now what's the natural pathway? And instead you're saying, you know what? No, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of like build my own path, design my own path. Right. The degree didn't give me courage. Like you said, it was the design process. learning the process of how to design something and how to think like a designer, that gave me courage because the way we define creative confidence is the ability to come up with new ideas, but then the courage to try them out. Too many of us have so many ideas. We sit on them for weeks, months, and years. We need that extra piece of the courage to try them out. You know, because we're so afraid of making a mistake. We're afraid of failing. We're afraid of what our parents are going to say. We're afraid of what the world is going to say. We're afraid of how other people are going to judge us and say, well, I thought you were going to be a teacher. Now you want to be an illustrator? That's confusing. You know, we're so afraid of how we're going to be perceived. So it was letting go of all of that. So what gave me creative confidence was learning a way to think and be. Mm -hmm. Can you think of a time when at that time you thought you had made a mistake, you had made a wrong decision and it crushed you. And then looking back, you're like, no, that was a pivotal point for me in the right direction. Hmm. Like a failure. Is that what you're describing? Yeah. Like something that at that time felt like a failure, but then looking back, you can say, no, you know what? It actually was a guide or a lesson or a teacher? Mm -hmm. So there are a few moments that are coming up, but one of them was when I started my business, I, I started doing private coaching and then very early in the game, because I tend to be, I'm the kind of person that like dives into the deep end and then realizes like, oh shit, I can't swim. Um, I've always been like that since I was a little girl in some ways. It's kind of like the achiever side. It's like, <laughs> so like some good, good side to the achiever part of me. But um, when I started my business, I decided almost too early in the game, try to switch to group programs. So I was doing one-on-one coaching for like a year and I was like, I'm going to start my group program. And I did a group program. It went really well. It was like a pilot of 12 women. They were stoked. Their lives had been completely transformed. My life was transformed in guiding them through a process, which was very much a design thinking process. After that group program, I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to double my numbers. I'm going to get twice as many girls in here. And it's going to be, I'm going to do it in half the amount of time. And I'm going to not give myself any rest between just doing that other group program and the next one. And guess what happened? I got burnt out. I didn't get as many enrollments as I thought I did. I switched the program up when the program was originally working. So why did I even switch things? It was like almost like I felt I need to. So I, I had a bit of a failure there. And so I was like, ugh. So I stopped and for four years, I only did private practice, which was really nice because private practice allowed me to write the book and allowed me to do the podcast because it's very stabilizing to just have a private practice. But when I started my group leadership program, Ignite, which now I've run multiple times, Mm -hmm. I had to think back at that failure 
and be like, because I was at a moment of like, do I do a group program? Am I ready now? Now it's been four or five years. Now I've written a book. Like, is now the good time? And I rem- that all those feelings of failure came up where I remembered how nobody enrolled and how embarrassed I felt. And so I had to be like, no, Maho, like I had to trust myself and say, you're a different person now. Now is the right time. And you've learned a lot. So it was a good moment for me to just see how even, you know, I think a lot of women too, and myself included, so I'm including myself in this. We have ideas, but we also have a lot of scars. <laughs> you know, We come in with scars from like the yeah. time all the way back to like when we were four years old and our dad didn't <laughs> come to the rehearsal all right. the way to like our high school teachers said that thing to us about our singing voice. But even to like the times we attempted things and we got burned and someone said something or it didn't work. And it's almost like that gets tucked into the subconscious, right? And we, mm-hmm. and we start to stack it up over time. And so if we don't become aware of those scars and bring them into the forefront, they become what I call in my group program, they become part of your resistance. It's the resistance force. So good girl programming, good girl, uh, the good girl myths, those are part of your resistance. But so... So are the scars that we've, the creativity scars that we've accumulated. They all become part of the resistance, which is the counterforce to you taking action. And it's the mm-hmm. counterforce to you bringing an idea into form. How many, again, how many of people listening to Jesse's podcast mm-hmm. who want to write a book, want to start a podcast, want to start their own business, want to create something meaningful, a service, a product, an experience, an event in the world, but are not? Why? because resistance. And so we have to understand our own resistance if we want to create anything. Oh, I love that. And that's on point. Again, it starts with awareness, but how did you become aware of certain things? Did you use a certain strategy, meditation or whatnot to start becoming aware? Because I think there's so much buried in our subconscious Mm. that even if sometimes we want to, like we don't remember certain things. I remember I was doing a a meditation with Christine, which is the person that, you know, I I found out through you because of her. And I remember like I had this memory that was buried in my subconscious. Like I didn't know it was guiding anything because I didn't even know it was there until that point. So how can we What are some strategies that you've utilized in your own life to become aware of these, you know, sometimes hidden resistances? Yes, I think meditation, particularly visualizations in which you are put, you put yourself into a very relaxed state and then you can go into your inner child, into your childhood memories. Because like you said, a lot of childhood memories get buried because we don't want to, we, we don't want to remember these things. I'll give you an, a very clear example. And I yeah. think you'll appreciate it because you're Argentinian. <laughs> but um, <laughs> for a long time, I resisted being a positive person. I know that sounds very weird, but I always associated positivity with like fakeness, like, mm. f- like people who are very smiley, very positive, like they want something from you or they you got to be suspicious of them. And I was like, well, oh, that's that- crazy because I'm really positive. So that's kind of scary to hear that. <laughs> I know with positive people, they're like, wow, there are people like you out there, like who think this way. I'm like, oh yeah. Tell that I'm not fake. <laughs> but there, you know, there's like a, there's, it comes from my good girl myth of logic, right? It's like mm-hmm. the cynical, skeptical part of myself, mm-hmm. right? And so I was trying to think back, like, you know, where did I get this from? 
And part of it too is, is, is a lot of it, so much of it is cultural. So it came, you know, I had a flashback to my grandfather when I was 10 and he would come from Argentina, but he, he had gone to British school. So he was a very kind of, he was a very special man, artistic, sensitive man who became an engineer, who had a certain way of seeing life, very black and white thinker. And I remember when I was 10, I told him that I liked this music. No, he showed me a CD that he liked, some music, because the way he and I would relate was through music. Anyways, he showed me a CD, and I got this memory flooding back where he, uh, where I said, wow, I love this music. And I told it to him in English, and he said to me, uh, he thought I was being sarcastic. So mm-hmm. there was like a misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. And so he went to my mother and said, you know, this, you know, this girl, she's being sarcastic. She doesn't have manners. Wow. <laughs> And so my mom came to me and said, what did you say? And I said, I said, I love the CD. And there was like a miss, there was like a loss in translation that we had. Mm-hmm. But from then on, it was almost like you, I can't be too positive because people won't believe me. Right. Like if I'm too positive, people are going to be mm-hmm. suspicious. Like they're going to be, mm-hmm. they're going to think I'm lying to them or I'm being sarcastic mm-hmm. or fake. And so this, anyway, this is how I remembered it. I'm sure he, right, right. RIP, I love my grandfather. He's no longer here, but oh. he, uh, yeah, he, um, so I'm sure he, re- he, if he even remembers, it would be a different story, but, mm-hmm. but it was so buried in my subconscious. It created that belief, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I just give that example of like, there are these even most fleeting moments we have with our primary caretakers or family members or Mm -hmm. teachers that we think are like nothing, but they calcify certain beliefs that hold us back and hold Mm -hmm. us back from being a certain way that we want to be. And so these come to us through dreams. They come through us to us through meditation. They also, another tool, journaling. I think journaling is a really good way to unearth memories, particularly from our childhood that we may have forgotten. You know, things that we think are, it's just stuff that's unprocessed, you know, that we Mm -hmm, get to mm -hmm. process later in life. Anyways, there are, you know, it's interesting sharing about all the ways my parents, and I even feel my own good girl myth of rules come up around like, oh, don't ever speak badly about family members, you know, (laughs) like I'm Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. seeing that come up for me because, you know, uh, in writing this process, you know, I've had to talk about my mother. I've had to talk about my Mm -hmm. father. I've had to talk about, and my family all in all, they've been so um, incredible and amazing. I've, I've experienced no abuse, no, you know, nothing compared to what a lot of people do. So I'm just saying, I'm just want to say that because I think it's important to give both sides whenever you're sharing your side of the story. Mm -hmm. And I think what you said is so true because I remember that when I had that flashback of the memory as an adult, now when I was an adult processing the memory, I knew because it was related to my mom, whom I adore my mom. She's my best friend. And again, I didn't remember this, but even though as a child, I processed it as something that maybe made me be a little more shy or like keep things to myself. When I saw it as an adult, when I remember it as an adult, I actually was like, oh, that was like the silliest, you know, most relevant thing. And I understood the intention and I understood that it had nothing to do with the way that I interpreted it back then. Yes. So this is why it's so important to process, like you said, these they just haven't been processed or they've been processed, especially with childhood ones from a perspective that obviously you as a child have 
you know, you don't have the same perspective and, you know, just understanding than you do when you're an adult. And so Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting what you're saying. And as you were speaking, I was like, heck yeah, that's so true. And also I had this question that I wanted to ask you sort of relevant to something you said, and is, you know, growing up in Argentina is something that, and I think this is kind of going back to the intuition, right? Like I'm very intuitive, but um, in Argentina, we kiss, right? And I remember like, it's a thing, like the kids, and I don't know, I wanted to ask you if you experienced this since you didn't grow up there, but your parents were very Argentinian like did they make you kiss like everyone because I remember like being little and like even if you felt icky like it, they wouldn't understand that it would just say like oh kiss your uncle kiss whoever because you know that's what we do right mm. um, and I think that sometimes can teach a kid or child you know like that even if something feels uncomfortable or you feel like your intuition is telling you something about someone because I think kids are very intuitive I think like maybe that's teaching us like oh well you still kiss them you're still polite you're still mm-hmm. you, know, you don't want to have bad manners right yes yeah and so or it's gonna they're gonna think that I didn't give you manners or educate you did you did you experience that or is that something that your parents maybe like moved you know didn't practice in Canada did they make you like kiss people and like (laughs) no my parents didn't do that I think it's fascinating that yours did did your parents make ask you to do that with like uh non-Argentines no, no, no. Um, this is like in my childhood. So I actually grew up there. So for me, it was, and, and I don't know if it was necessarily just my parents. Like it was just the culture. Like everyone yeah, yeah. was expected. Like if the kid didn't want to kiss somebody. It was like rude. That's a kid with bad manners. And so I would hear that. And then, you know, again, going back to, I was a good girl. I was always following the rules. So I was like, okay, I kiss everybody. But I remember there were times when I was like, I don't really want to kiss that guy. <laughs> like, yeah. Was, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, totally. So I wasn't sure if that's something that you you got, because I think a lot of Argentinian uh, kids that I, or like now adults that I talk to, experience to that. But maybe since you guys were in Canada. We're in Canada. I think it's different. But I love hearing this story because um, I think it's such a great example of the power of like the myth of rules and culture, you know, Mm -hmm. where basically you had your own desires in that moment and you had to override it because there was like a rule in this house, which is like when you, when someone comes in the door, you greet them with a kiss. And like, that's what we do here, you know? So yeah, there's, you know, in a lot of cultures where family is very strong and it's very intertwined with religion, you're going to see a lot of rules, mm-hmm. a lot of customs, norms, the way things are done or the way things have been done for many, many years. And so, you know, particularly when I'm thinking about speaking to Latinx, it's like, you know, because people mm-hmm. have been asking me about cultural differences with the good girl myths and like, do I think like Latinx you know, have more tendency towards certain good girl myths than others. You know, I tend to say I I think rules is pretty big for for us uh, just because we're such strong family. We're so family oriented. We're such a family oriented Mm -hmm. culture. Mm -hmm. And families have, you know, they're tribal. They have a way Mm -hmm. of, you know, these are the way things are done. And and there's a lot of expectations about what my daughter is going to do, what my son's going to do. Have you seen Coco? I have. Yeah. So it reminds me a little bit of that. Uh-huh. Like, you know, uh-huh. when he, he breaks his good boy myth of rules, mm-hmm. you know, when he decides he's going to be a musician and not a shoemaker. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it takes a lot of courage to do that. Yeah. And I think like sometimes people, especially in the U.S., you know, they, I guess when it comes to politics and, and being conservative or, or liberal, I think a lot of people that are not Latinx assume that 
Latinx people are like super liberal, maybe, you know, because they're immigrants and they're quote unquote breaking the rules when they come here and whatnot. But like, it's really interesting what you're saying, because we actually are really traditional. Um, Mm -hmm. Aside from like coming here and all that, we actually have you know, we're really conservative in some ways, especially the older generations. And like you said, family, you know, there's a lot of rules and customs and things that you have to kind of like live by or expectations. And one of them, especially from immigrant parents is that expectation like, hey, you know, whether they say it or not, I feel like sometimes many times it's, it's, um, you know, it's just kind of like there, the expectation without being outspoken. But, you know, I came here, I sacrificed or whatnot. So now, you know, you as a as a kid don't want to kind of throw away the opportunity so yes you know you feel like you have to like make it worth it almost and mm-hmm. I think that can become a burden or it can become something that leads you to do something that maybe you don't want to do so I really yes. love that you know you kind of like created your own path when you're on way and then what do your parents say now what do they think now and I'm sure they're proud of you but what has <laughs> been the feedback from them now that with everything that you're doing they're super proud they're so cute um <laughs> it's been a journey to get there. It took them many years, you know? And, and I think for a lot of people too, like, you know, if you're thinking about starting your own path, designing your own life, designing your own path, breaking your good girl myths, at the beginning, you're going to have uh, people who are skeptical, who are not going to believe, you know, who are going to say, I don't know, are you sure you don't want to just take the job? Or are you sure you don't want to just mm-hmm. uh, get married now and have kids? You know, you're going to have that from parents, from, but if you give them a few months, years, sometimes where you prove to them that you're happy with this new path, Mm -hmm. they come around, you know, it's like the first time I graduated from my master's, I told my mom I wanted to do coaching. She was like, what? (laughs) But now she's like, so she's so happy. And she's like, oh, I love the work you're doing with women. Like, you know, so it just Mm -hmm. also you're breaking people's mental models because people have their own projections, their own mental models about what they're capable of. And so therefore what they think you're capable of. So they have their own rigidity. Don't let them project that onto you. Have those boundaries of like, okay, that's your opinion. Thank you. You know, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to live by your opinion. I'm going to listen to your opinion. I see how that comes from your life and the way that you think. (laughs) And I'm going to continue on my way. Um, So I think, you know, my parents now are, were, they're, they're so, they were my first number one fans, you know, when the book came out, my mom posted a TikTok with her, with the book, with her two chihuahuas, with some funny music. (laughs) You know, my dad has like shared it with everybody in Argentina from his hometown in Victoria. And I'm getting like, all these requests to be interviewed and like on the radio there. Are you going to do it in Spanish? I want to know that. Are you going yeah. to do a Spanish for sure? Here's a book. I got to show it to you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm working on that right now. So I'm, I'm speaking to my publisher right now about translating it into Spanish. And because I think, you know, I think so many Latinx women are going to relate to this message. Heck yeah. <laughs> Heck, Heck yeah. Yes. And oh, we yeah. have a lot of listeners that are, by the way, that are, we have a lot of obviously of bilingual listeners, but we also do have a big audience that only speak Spanish in Latin America. So we have some Spanish episodes too. So I'm sure they would appreciate this book. And I'd be happy to share if you ever have like the Spanish version of it. But um, if you could share a piece of advice um, with the women here, what would it be? Mm -hmm. You can share one tip. Hmm. Let me ask you a question. What do you think your women struggle with the most? The women who you... That's a good question. I would say, so we have a lot of entrepreneurs in our community. 
Uh, we have a lot of creatives. So I would say a lot of the things that I get asked is, you know, about fear, taking the leap, starting a business. So it's usually along those lines. But I think even those things still go back to some root, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to some of the myths that you talk about in your book. So mm-hmm. Okay, great. So my advice is going to be very practical, which is that it's counterintuitive too. You do not have to take a big leap right now, necessarily. What you can do is take one of your ideas, whatever you want to create, even if it's for a business, for a book, for a product, a service, and you can prototype it in small ways. And I share how you can do that in the book. Under the myth of perfection, I go into how to break ideas down, how to prototype, how to embrace constraints. And the reason I like prototyping is that it helps you de-risk your moves. So you don't feel like you have to make a huge career pivot or take a big financial risk or do something very drastic. You can just test and experiment small ways. You can even stay at your job or you could still stay doing what you're doing as an entrepreneur. You don't have to make a big, big change. So I'm very into small, iterative changes. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation and doing the research. Like you have research in your book, you have interviews, you have stories. And I really appreciate that. I really appreciate Mm -hmm. um, a book that you can tell that a lot of thought was put into it and it's not just superficial information. So I encourage everyone listening to check out the book. And again, I'm going to hold it up again. So this is for the ones watching the video and um, go find you. So where can people find you? Thank you. (laughs) You should have done a screenshot of that. So you can go to goodgirlmyth.com. Goodgirlmyth.com is where you can order the book. And that webpage is hosted on my website. So from there, you can explore. You can Uh, check out my free quiz. You can check out my podcast. There's so many things I have going on my program. Lots of things. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Maho, I hope it's not the last time when I'm in LA. Are you in LA now or you're in in up north? I'm in SF right now, San Francisco. Oh, you are. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us and your knowledge. I know that as beautiful as it sounds now and perfect, it took a whole life journey to get to where you are. So thank you so much for doing that and for showing up in this world and being yourself and living out in your purpose. Hmm. Thank you, Jesse. Same to you. All right. Besos. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Femex Podcast. I truly hope that it has inspired you and helped you grow a little more. Don't forget to follow us on social at Femex Podcast. That is F-E-M-X Podcast. I'll see you there. Besos. Welcome to Femex Podcast. This is your host, Jesse Medina. I'm so excited for today's interview where I got to chat with Majo Molfino. She's also a fellow Argentine, which I don't find a lot of, so I'm super excited. She is an author, designer, and women's leadership expert. She's the author of Break the Good Girl Myth, which, let me tell you, is so incredible. I already read it, and we are going to dive into that in our conversation today. She's also the host of Heroing Podcast, featuring top female leaders, creatives, and visionaries. Her leadership program, Ignite, guides women to design and share a creative dream with the world. She has a master's in learning, design, and technology and a bachelor's degree in psychology. You can find out more about her in this interview and at mahumolfino.com. So let's dive right into it. 